Grab a Bible and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll pick up where we were a couple weeks ago. I remember Pastor Chuck warning us at pastor's conferences years ago. He'd say, usually towards the end of the conference, look around. There are some people who won't be here next year. And, and his point was, hey, guard your heart so that you're not one of those. But every year he'd say, this is going to be the last time you'll see some of these guys. And, and of course he was right. Doesn't make it any easier. Someone sent me a, a, a blog kind of a, of a thing through Facebook. Top 10 things people don't know about pastors. And, and you know, there's a bunch of those that are floating around. I tend to not repost them because they're a little too, hey, look at me, verging sometimes on woe is me. This, wasn't, this one wasn't even that great. You know, top 10 things people don't know about pastors. Pastors work more than one day a week. <laughs> You're glad you were sitting down for that one, right? <laughs> pastors sometimes have doubts and questions about their faith. Newsflash. But you know, the one thing that, that grabbed me, it was like six or seven on the list. It was pastors hurt when people leave the church, but they deeply grieve when people leave the faith. That certainly wasn't new information for me, but boy, is it true. And not just pastors, right? You're not pastors, most of you, and, and yet I, I'm guessing every single one of us knows the heartbreak when, when good friends, family, church family, when people we love go sideways. And it's, and, it's, and it's bad when they fall away from the church when, when they're not plugged into a, a loving, spirit-filled Bible-teaching fellowship. And it's even worse when they fall away from the Lord altogether. Paul knew that heartbreak. Paul knew that heartbreak very well. It's why he's writing this letter, the letter to the Galatians, his letter to, to people that he cared about. People who were very much like family to him. People that he calls brothers, children, who are no longer believing sound doctrine, who are no longer following the Lord. What do we do when that happens? In our text this morning, Paul is going to give us some thoughts. He's not going to give us a formula because he's a Christ follower and he knows how much Jesus abhors recipes and algorithms and formulas. Jesus went out of his way to avoid his ministry being reduced to formula. So Paul doesn't give us that. But he does give us an example of how one guy who loves God and loves people responded when his friends changed the way that they loved God and loved people. Lord, as we look to your word, I've got to pray once more because this is deep stuff. This is heavy stuff. This is important stuff. So Lord, would you pour out your spirit and illuminate your word. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Give us guidance and direction. Give us passion and unction. And Lord, we also ask, would you give us peace and remind us throughout this message, you are in control. We look to you and we ask you to have your way. And we ask in Jesus' name. The fact that Paul's friends in Galatia have gotten off track is not exactly news. Paul's been telling us that for several weeks now, right? Step by step, he's been unpacking how they 
have gotten off track and the ways in which they're off track, step by step, like, like a lawyer in a courtroom maybe, or a professor in a classroom. He spelled it out. Here's where things went wrong. Here's how you abandon the gospel of grace. Here's how you put yourselves back under the law. But as we pick up this morning in, in Galatians 4, verse 8, Paul, Paul's approach changes dramatically, in fact. His tone changes. You can hear it even in the written word. The Paul we hear from this morning is not Paul the prosecutor or Paul the professor. This is Pastor Paul. Well, what he has to say is not so much doctrinal or theological as it is deeply, deeply personal for him. Verse 8, Then indeed, when, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. That, that's where you were when we met, Paul is saying. You were worshiping idols. But now after you've known God, and even better, you're known by God, adopted by God. That's where he left off, right? In verse 7. We're not only saved, we're adopted, known by God. So how is it? How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You were sons. Why are, you, why are you going back to being slaves? Why would you want to? But you are. You observe days and months and seasons and years. You observe feasts and festivals and all the other minutiae that Judaism requires. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain. You can taste Paul's tears as you read, can't you? That's what Martin Luther said about this portion of the letter. Martin Luther loved Galatians. But of this portion of the letter, he said, he said this, you get to this part and it's like Paul is breathing out tears. He's hurting so much for his friends. But what, what is he showing us? Not teaching so much as modeling for us as he's reaching out to them. In this passage, there are six things I'm going to call out. And if you're taking notes, you, you'll be able to hear them when we get to them. I'll, I'll try to call them out. But we're going to talk about where and who and what, how, and why, and when, in that order. Where, who, what, how, why, when. If you missed it, I'll call it out when we get to it. But the first thing I noticed Paul do, the thing that he just did, he describes where they've gone. That's the first point. He's telling them, here's, here's, here's what I think has changed. Here's where you were. You were over here. Celebrating grace. Rejoicing in God's power. Overwhelmed by the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Now you're over here. Weak and poor. Slaves. And, and, and yeah, in a sense, Paul's been doing that for three chapters. And as he moves into this section, he's, he's, he's kind of summarizing it. He tells his friends, here's, here's where you were. And here's where you are. And he tells him what he thinks about it. He says, I'm really worried that that's where you are. When I met you, verse 8, when I met you, you were worshiping demons. That's what idol worship is. That's what every kind of idol worship is. If we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping darkness. When I met you, Paul says, you were slaves to flesh, slaves to the world, slaves to Satan. But then you heard the gospel. And then, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you were saved. God adopted you. You became his sons and daughters. And now, now you're going backwards. 
You've traded the power of God and the riches of his grace for weakness and emptiness and nothingness of legalism. You're back to celebrating days and months for crying out loud. You put yourself back under the law. How how has it come to this? One person reading ahead asked me actually two weeks ago, you know, when Paul calls out the Galatians for, for, for recognizing Jewish holy days, days and months is what, what that point said. So, so is it wrong to celebrate Christmas? Because Christmas is a day. What would Paul think about that? And my answer is it's not wrong if it's a day that we celebrate to commemorate Christ's birth, especially since we know Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. <laughs> Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We don't know when he was born, but it's extremely unlikely it was then. It's okay to rejoice that Jesus came into the world as a baby, just as we rejoice that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And to pick a day and and, and do that, I don't see anything wrong with it, unless, and this is what Paul would say, unless you think that by observing that day, by celebrating that day, in somehow you're, you're drawing close to God. You're getting points with God. You're pleasing God. When I left, Paul says, you understood that's not how this works. When I left, you knew, you understood. You were excited that you didn't have to do anything to earn God's love. That nothing that you ever did would make God love you more and nothing that you ever did would make God love you less. You understood you had perfect and complete favor with God, that you'd been adopted, that you were his sons and daughters, and now you're back working like slaves trying to earn what you already have, trying to find favor that God has already given. You've changed, Paul says. And I'm afraid for you. Part of why... Paul is afraid. He knows the longer they go down this road that they've gotten on is the longer they'll go down the road that they've gotten on. It's a self-perpetuating sort of a cycle. Once we start doubting that we're sons and daughters, once we stop being sure that that's true, when we lose our assurance, we wonder if it's true, somebody tells us that it's not true, the more we lose confidence in who we are in Christ, the more we start working to fix that. And the harder we work to fix that, the more we realize that we haven't fixed it yet, the farther away God seems, the more we think we have to, the harder we think that we have to. It's an an addiction. An addiction is insanity. If Satan can so doubt, does God really love you? Has God really said? Then he's got us. Because then we make it our business. Well, I, I need to make sure God loves me. What do I need to do to make sure God loves me? Well, you need to pray like this. Okay. You need to give like this. Okay. You need to serve like this. I will. You need to eat like this. I'll try. And, 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 and then in our insecurity, well, am I, am I doing it right? Look at me praying and giving and serving and eating and give me affirmation for the way that I'm giving and serving and, and praying and eating. And you, you should be giving and praying and serving and eating. And, and what's wrong with you that you're not giving and serving? And, and one pastor has an interesting way of describing this. He says, Christians who are, who are no longer sure that God accepts them for who they are in Christ Jesus apart from their works, Christians who aren't sure that God loves them for who they are in Jesus and not for the things that they do are radically insecure. And they do all of the things that you expect from insecure people. Why is that? 
Because once that idea is in our head, we look around and we listen to people are talking about godliness and holiness and righteousness, and we think, wow, I need to get some of that because I'm not as much like that as I want to be. I'm not as much like that as God has called me to be, so I need to go out and get that so I can please God. And Richard Lovelace is, is, is the pastor. He, he says, their insecurity shows itself in pride. I am too loved by God. A fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness. Look at all I'm doing for God. And even fiercer criticism of others. Why aren't you doing the things I'm doing for God? See, that's what Paul's afraid of. That's where he sees his friends headed. That's, that's the road he knows that they've started down. But here, here's what's interesting to me. He doesn't say any of that. I'm saying that. And you're probably already thinking that. And Paul knows that because if we can figure it out, Paul was brilliant. He's, he's miles down the road in front of us. Paul knows that's what's going on. But he doesn't, notice, he doesn't psychoanalyze his friends. He doesn't tell them, this is why you're doing this. This is your motive. This is where it all began. Let's talk about your toilet training. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say, this is your reason. This is your motive. These are your values. He just said, this is what's happening. He doesn't talk to them about the psychology of what's happening, especially in a letter, especially not over a text message or in an email, because he knows that's not going to get him anywhere. What happens if Paul tries that? Look, this is where you've gone, and this is the reason you've gone there. There's some insecurity. I, I'm not insecure. Yes, you are. I, I don't think I'm insecure. Clearly you are. I, no, I don't think I'm insecure. If you weren't insecure, you wouldn't be denying it. You know what denial means. It's M not R2, M not R2, M, and before you know it, Paul and his friends are further apart, not closer together. If Paul tries to tell them, what they're thinking, what they want. It's too easy to deny. Too easy to put up a wall. Too easy to get further apart. That's not what Paul wants. He wants to win a brother. He doesn't want to win an argument. So he leads off with facts, not interpretation. He talks about things he can see and point at. Hey, can I call out something? Can I show you something that I'm seeing? You were, you were here, standing in grace, and now you're here, slaving away. That's what seems to have happened to me. What, what does it look like to you? That's the first thing that Paul does. He says, here's where you've gone in my eyes. Can we talk about it? Before Paul continues, what's interesting, the next place Paul goes, next thing that he tells him, hey, before we continue, I want you to know who you are to me. That's the second point. Let me remind you who you are. If you're not sure, I want to make sure that you're sure. And he does it with a single word. Verse 12, he says, brethren. And he's going to use more words later. But, but here, he drops this word in very on purpose. Very purposefully would be a more goodly way of saying that. Paul's very intentional. He chooses his words carefully. He says, brethren. Because he doesn't want to keep going. He doesn't want to say anything else before he's reminded them, hey, we're an us together. We have a relationship. We have history and we have kinship. We're brothers and sisters. Because he knows how people are and he knows how many of us are insecure. And without calling that out, he knows our temptation when somebody disagrees with us is to globalize. 
Paul disagrees with me. You know why? Because he hates me. Yeah, Paul hates me. And Paul thinks I hate God. And, you know, Paul thinks I'm not saved. Some churches will actually encourage that kind of thinking. It's sad. But there are churches that will tell people, oh, if they taught you that, oh, they hate you if they taught you that. And you need to hate them back. You need to despise that, that, that dangerous, destructive kind of teaching. Oh, you know, if they even know that you're here, if they know you're even considering buying into this kind of a doctrine, you know what they're going to say about you. You better off not telling them. Just, just cut the ties. Sometimes we don't need anyone to teach us that or tell us that. We're pretty capable of going there in our own heads, aren't we? Paul's going to disagree with me. He won't understand. I'll try to explain. He'll shoot me down. He'll tell me I'm wrong. He'll, he'll use big words in one of those sentences that goes on for like three pages and make me feel stupid. And he'll tell everyone that I'm stupid because I don't understand and shame me in front of my friends and I'll look like an idiot. I'm going to show Paul. I'm going to cut him out of my life before he has a chance to hurt me. Ever done that? Paul doesn't want his Galatian readers to do that. And, and, and we shouldn't want our friends to do that either. I think it's important that, that, that we not just assume, but we say, I'm not saying what I'm saying because I hate you. I'm not saying what I'm saying because I think you hate God. Neither one of those things is true. We're still brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters together, and we're still part of this great, big, crazy family that God decided to adopt. Paul is saying to his readers, if someone told you I hate you, I don't. If someone told you that I don't want to have anything to do with you because we disagree about some stuff, they're wrong. I don't know if they're lying or just mistaken, but they're wrong. I love you. That's what Paul means when he says brethren. Now, now let's be clear. Paul, Paul is hurting. Paul is hurting. He's hurting the way that any of us hurt when a friend, somebody that we love, goes spiritually sideways. He hurts the way that the Lord hurts when someone he loves goes spiritually sideways. Think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Luke 19, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I didn't want it to be like this. I wanted to love you and save you and, and protect you like a mother protects her children. If only. Scripture says that angels rejoice when one sinner, when one soul surrenders to Jesus and accepts the forgiveness that Jesus purchased at the cross. The angels throw a party in heaven. But if that's true, then the reciprocal must be true. The, the, the inverse must be true. If the angels rejoice over one soul that comes home to Jesus, that's how much the angels must grieve when one soul walks away from Jesus. That's how it should hurt us, right? But the thing we need to watch out for is that hurt is not our motive. It can be a fact, should be a fact, but we need to be careful that it's not our motivation. Because you, you know what I'm going to say, right? Hurting people do what? Hurting people hurt people. 
We need to make sure that that's not us, that that's not our mode of, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You made me feel this tall, I'm going to make you feel smaller. You made me feel bad about myself, I'm going to tell you how bad I think you are. We're going to even things out. We're going to have some eye for an eye action here. That's not where Paul's coming from. And he wants them to know. He, he, he very much wants them to understand that's not where he's coming from. Look to the end of the sentence. The end of the sentence, Paul says, you haven't injured me at all. I'm not trying to get even with you. I'm not trying to settle the score. I'm trying to help you. I'm not, I'm not hitting back. See, no fists. I'm reaching out. And I'm reaching out to invite you, to, to beg you. Will, you. will you come back? Will you come back to Jesus? Paul's gotten to his, his third point. He talked about where they've gone. He's reminded them who they are in, in his eyes and in God's eyes. And now he's come around to what he wants. Why is he writing? What's he asking for? And he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't make him guess. He doesn't make him play 20 questions. I'm writing because I'm asking you to reconsider the path you've taken. Now the words Paul chooses are a little strange. Verse 12, the part we skipped over, he says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. At first glance, that sounds like because I'm really quite something. I am the model of a modern major general. Brethren, I urge you to become like me. Oh, because you're all that, Paul. You set the standard. He kind of does, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to be free like me. Be delivered from slavery once and for all, like me. I became like you, he says. I was a Jew, and I'm now free from the law, so I can be like a Gentile. I can enjoy liberty in Christ. I was under the law, but I graduated from that, and now I enjoy freedom in Christ Jesus. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God, he said back in chapter 2. He's not saying... And, 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 and don't read it this way. He's not saying you need to be mini-me's. You need to be small Paul's. He's not saying the reason I came to Galatia is to make little clones of myself and you're messing it up. And we need to make sure we're not doing that either. That we're not looking to people, reaching out to people, and as we do, we're, we're saying, because you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it like me. I know what's good here. One of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus is the incredible diversity in the body of Christ. We don't have to be saved the same way. Some people can point at the moment, the place, the hour, the minute they were saved. Some people, I don't know, it happened in like September. <laughs> the beginning of the month, I know that I didn't know Jesus, and by the end of the month, I did. Something happened in September. We're different in how we worship. If, if, if you were looking around a little bit as, as we worshiped together, there were people singing as loud as they could, and there were people singing almost under their breath. People with their hands up. People, you know, catching the football. People with their hands at their sides. There were some people who were standing, some people who were sitting, some people who weren't vocalizing at all because their, their song was internal, their song was in their heart. And all of those things are okay. We don't have to all do church the same. I think of the Mercy Me song from a few years ago. I can only imagine the, 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 the movie, the 
brought it back around just recently. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? What will it be like when I see Jesus face to face? Will I dance? Or in awe of you, will I just be, be paralyzed? Will I stand? Will I, will I fall to my knees? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I, will, I be, will I be unable to speak? I don't think there's one answer to that question. I mean, it's, it's, it's an intriguing question. What's going to be like when we see Jesus? I don't know that it's going to be the same answer for all of us. Some of us might stand. Some of us might kneel. Some of us might dance. Some of us might be paralyzed. One of the great things about the body of Christ is that we don't have to be clones of one another. And we need to be careful that we don't look at people and say, you're not doing church the way that I do church. You're not being a Christian the way that I'm being a Christian. You're doing it wrong. No, freedom in Christ means freedom to be different. That's actually what Paul's trying to liberate the Galatians from. He's trying to free them from people who have come into town and told them, no, you're doing church all wrong. Paul is saying, I know what that's like. That was me for the longest time. I was under the law. It took me a long time to be free like you. Don't put yourself back in chains. Be who you are. Your son's not slaves. And Paul goes on to say, that idea appealed to you once. Once upon a time, you were excited about that. Once upon a time, you, you ate up the gospel that I brought you with a spoon. And it wasn't because I was such a good-looking guy. Charismatic speaker, great presenter, fantastic animation in my PowerPoint presentation. Paul says, no, when I came to you, I was a mess. He's moving on to the next point of his appeal. He's talking about, here's where you've gone. Here's who you are. Here's what I want. Now he's going back and he said, hey, can we talk for a minute about how things began? He's appealing to their shared history. He says, can we rewind the tape to when we first met, back when the gospel made sense to you? How, put yourself back in time, how we got started together. That wasn't, wasn't that long ago. And verse 13, you know that I came to you because of physical infirmity. Because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. The reason I showed up in Galatia when I did, Paul says, I was sick like a dog. And we don't know what kind of sick. A lot of people say malaria. And I'll admit that makes good sense, because before he went to Galatia, he was in Perga. What do we know about Perga? It's low, it's swampy, it's hot. Bugs the size of birds. It's a great place to get malaria if you want to. And, and malaria can be debilitating if it's not treated. One commentator I read who, who had malaria, who experienced it in, in the missions field, says it's like having a red-hot bar of iron thrust through your forehead. It's like the worst migraine you've ever had. And malaria can cause uh, eye conditions. And Paul hints that, that maybe the thorn of the flesh that he talks about, the, the, the physical issue that he had was an eye issue. And, and so if all of those things are true, then it makes a certain amount of sense that he'd go to the higher, cooler climate of Galatia to try to recover. But we don't know for sure. I, I, doctors have a hard enough time diagnosing someone who's sitting in the same room with them with 21st century technology. I don't know about your doctors. Mine are committed to practicing medicine and practicing. And, pr and one of these days they'll get it right. My point is, 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 is we're foolish trying to diagnose someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Maybe he had malaria, one theory. Whatever happened with him, he was wrecked. That we know. Shows up in Galatia verse 14, and he says, I was such a mess, I wouldn't have blamed you if you'd despised me or rejected me. 
He could have looked and said, what is he good for? Just, just push him in the corner and, 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 you know, get some incense in here so it doesn't smell as much. Paul says, you could have done that. I was gross. But you know what? You listened to what I had to say. I was falling apart. No one would have blamed you if you'd kicked me to the curb. I wouldn't have blamed you, but you didn't. Verse 14, my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. You could have said, hey, what kind of God does this guy serve? Look at him. Either his God doesn't have the power to heal him, because he hasn't, or he has the power and he doesn't like Paul very much. And that's what you would have concluded. That's what you should have concluded, Paul says, if, if you'd been looking at me. If this had been all about me, we wouldn't have gotten out of the starting gate together. But you weren't looking at me. Paul has said, look, this isn't, this isn't personal. I'm not trying to get even. And he's saying, guys, I, I, I hope that this isn't personal for you, that you've decided that I wronged you or conned you or played you or this was all because I wanted something for you. He's going back to the beginning and he says, don't make this about me because it never was about me. This is about the gospel. And you receive the truth of the gospel not because of me, but in spite of me. You listen to my message even though the messenger was falling apart at the seams. You listen to the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit bore witness to it. You realize it was from the true and living God. And you put your trust in Him. You believed. Do you remember what that was like, Paul says, verse 15? Do you remember the blessing you enjoyed, the happiness that you had, the satisfaction you experienced? Do you remember the joy of knowing your sins were forgiven? Of understanding what it was to be adopted by God our Heavenly Father? Do you remember that joy, Paul asks? Do you remember the love we had? I was serving you, you were serving me. Why? Because of the joy that we had together in Christ. That was real, wasn't it? You remember, don't you? We were so close, Paul says. I would have done anything for you, you would have done anything for me. Verse 15, I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Well, that's graphic. <laughs> and maybe that's a reference to, to an eye condition. Maybe that's Paul saying, my eyes were so gross and you loved me so much that, that, that you said, Yo, if, if, if I could give you my eyes, I would. You know, may, maybe, it, maybe it's just an expression. Maybe it's Paul saying, you would have given your right arm for me. You would have donated a kidney for me. But his point is, you would have done anything for me, and I would have done the same for you. So what happened? Where's your joy gone? Where's your love gone? How did I become the bad guy in this? Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We didn't start out that way. Paul knows teachers have come on the scene in Galatia and they're saying, we're going to teach you higher truth than Paul's ever dreamed of. And we're going to be better friends to you than Paul's capable of. But Paul knows this is the catch. Paul knows those same teachers are also saying, but here's the thing, in order to be our friends, you have to be Paul's enemy. In order to be our friend, in order to be God's friend, you can't be friends with Paul anymore. You need to shun him. It doesn't sound like God, does it? And that's what Paul's trying to help him see. Verse 17, he says, these new friends of yours, they zealously court you, but, but, but not for good reasons. They want to exclude you, meaning they want to exclude me from you, so that you can be zealous for them and only for them and always for them. Not for the God that they serve, for them. 
I know what they're telling you, Paul says. They're telling you that you're great. And they're, they're cataloging all the different ways in which you're great and all the greatness that you're doing and, the, and, and how much they love you and, and how much this new doctrine is going to help you. This new way of thinking about God is going to open doors for you. It's going to unleash power for you. But here's what they're not telling you. Or rather, here's what they are telling you. They're telling you that you can have all that, but you have to be exclusive. Can't go around dating other churches. I don't want you having coffee with with other teaching. Don't be friends with people from other fellowships. You know, that's the definition of a heretic. We we, we tend to lump terms like heretic and blasphemer all, all together. A heretic is someone who says, you have to choose me and reject not me. You have to choose this false doctrine. And you have to choose these false teachers and not look back. What are they afraid of, Paul is asking. And we can imagine those teachers saying, well, Paul, you wanted the same thing. You know, Paul, you were saying, only read my books, only go to my small groups, only listen to my teaching. You're just jealous, Paul. You just want them back. You just, you just want their, their, their tithing back in the agape box. Paul's saying, no. No, that, that couldn't be further from what I'm saying. And his next point, he says, let me be clear why I'm reaching out. Paul very carefully didn't speculate on the Galatians' motives because how could he possibly know for sure? It's too easy for them to say you're wrong. But Paul has no problem saying, these are my motives and I'm going to tell you so that you aren't confused. He wants to go on record. It's good to be zealous in a good thing always, verse 18. It's good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I'm present with you. I don't mind, Paul says, if you listen to other teachers. As long as they teach the Word, go for it. I don't mind if God calls you to a new church. God calls people to places. And if He's calling you out and planting you in a a Bible-teaching, people-loving, Spirit-filled church, that's fantastic. I don't care if we disagree about side issues, Calvinism and eschatology and, and, and gifts of the Spirit. I care I care, I deeply, deeply care that you're loving and following Jesus. Paul's getting a little defensive. I thought Jesus told us not to defend ourselves. Well, not exactly. Not exactly times times two. A, Jesus didn't say don't defend yourself. He just didn't defend himself. He didn't model that for us in any of his trials before his crucifixion. Why? He'd already presented all the evidence. He had already said everything that he had to say many, many times in front of many witnesses. They were insulting the God of the universe by asking him to repeat himself. So no, Jesus didn't defend himself. And Paul's not really defending himself either, so much as he's just going on record. Because if we don't speak for ourselves, Satan will speak for us. Satan loves a vacuum because then he gets to fill it. Paul's not getting shrill or strident here. He's just saying, hey, believe this or don't believe this, but... This is my version of where I was coming from. I don't care if you're exclusive with me, my church, my tribe, my distinctives. I don't care. But I care deeply that you're exclusive with Jesus, that you're loving and serving Him alone. Bezal isn't a good thing, not a Paul thing, is what he's saying. End up in a church that loves Jesus, teaches the truth, is filled with the Spirit. That's awesome. That's true here as well. I hope you know that. It says, wind, build, and send on the wall when you walk in. 
And that doesn't just mean send out people to, to plant churches, to pastor churches. That means send people out to serve in places and times that God calls us to with the gifts that He gives us, all of us. Wind, build, and send isn't about planting church. It's about being church. And, 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 and when people from this church become part of other fellowships, when people from other fellowships come here, it should be like, like a marriage. It should be like a great wedding reception where two families are coming together and rejoicing because their family has just expanded. That's what, that's what happens when it happens well. When it happens badly, it's more like a, a bad breakup with your high school girlfriend. <laughs> Instead of win, build, send, it's you know win, build, end. <laughs> Here's your things back. I've actually had people do that. Like, like, like my girlfriend did in 11th grade. You know, here's, here's your sweatshirt and here's your CDs. My U2 CD in there. It's still better when people, it's still better than when just people just disappear, though. When people go away mad and they tell you, at least you have that information. That's when people just disappear. What happened? Back to Paul. What, what Paul's saying implicitly in this passage is he's saying, look, if I've moved, if it's my fault, if I did something wrong, if my doctrine changed, if, if, if I'm teaching something different than I did when I was with you, or, or if you've realized I was always wrong even when I'm with you, and then now you're just figuring it out, hey, you should be doing what I'm doing. You should be reaching out to me. You should be showing me where I've got it wrong. You should be appealing to me. You should be loving me or trying to love me the way I'm trying to love you. Because, verse 19, he says, that's all I've ever tried to do. And it's all I'm trying to do right now, he says. Verse 19, my little children, that's a term of endearment, dear children, precious children who I love, children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He says, I love you like a father and mother put together. I labored to love you like a mother labors to give birth. I, I labored to bring you to Christ. And, and now I feel like I'm in labor all over again. Because it feels like you need to be born again, again. Not for justification, that, that's, that's permanent, but, but for sanctification. He's saying you're alive in Christ, but you're not living, and that breaks a parent's heart. Instead of rejoicing in freedom, you're laboring in bondage. You're not following God, you're following man. And instead of becoming more and more and more like Christ, you're more and more like mice in a wheel, working really hard and going nowhere. When can we get back to the way things were? Paul's final point. And he's both asking and answering the question. He's asking, when are you going to come back? Not to me, because who am I? When are you going to come back to Jesus? When are you going to look up? Not so I can claim you and say, this is one of my disciples, put another notch on my belt. When are you going to look up so that you can claim him? So that you can remember that he claimed you? When are you going to decide that Jesus is more important than the church that you attend or the pastor that you follow or the doctrine you've embraced? Paul's asking him those things. And he's telling them, when are things going to be different? Well, I'm not going to pretend that they aren't. I'm not going to pretend that things haven't happened. I'm not going to see you at the park or at the party or at the store and just go on like nothing's wrong, like nothing's changed. I love you too much for that. Verse 20, he says, I don't like having to challenge you like this. We can mistakenly conclude, because Paul is so very good 
Paul is so expert at, at loving confrontation, we can conclude that he relishes this, that he lives for this. Oh, I get to smack someone in Jesus' name. It's going to be a good day. No, verse 20, he says, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone. I'd like to be having a different conversation. And when you convince me that I'm wrong, that, I, that I'm worried about nothing, that you're loving and following the Jesus of the Bible with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, I will. But until then, verse 20, I've got doubts. I've got doubts about you. And as long as I have these doubts, I'm going to keep loving you enough to be honest with you. Not, not telling you what I think you want to hear, not, not saying what's safe to say, not just talking about things that benefit me. I'm going to tell you what's true. Now notice Paul doesn't say, I'm going to chase you, I'm going to plague you, I'm going to pressure you, I'm going to speak to you in your dreams and give you no peace until you see things my way. You wake up, you're going to have a text message. You go to lunch and you're going to have a voicemail. You come home, there's going to be a note on your door. Now, we, we, you know what happens when you try that. People have tried that with, with you about something, I'm sure. You shut down, right? That just, that just galvanizes you. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to hear. I'm just going to wait for it to be over. That's not what Paul wants. And I don't think that's what we want. What is Paul saying? He says, can we get together? Can we talk? Can we do this face-to-face -face so, so that I, I can hear your tone and, and so that you can see the pain in my eyes? Can we get together and, and, and both say everything that we want to say? You, you know where to find me. I've, 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 I've laid it out. You know where I'm coming from now if you didn't before. Ball's in your court. I hope we can meet. We can talk or not. But whether we talk or not, I love you. Whether we talk or not, I'm going to pray for you. But one thing I won't do, one thing I can't do, one thing Christ won't let me do is pretend there's nothing going on with you. Because love doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. God didn't do that. That's why we're here. Do you have someone like that in your life, someone that you need to reach out to? If, 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 if you're here this morning, I'm guessing that a name or, or names, a face, or maybe a crowd has been showing up in your mind. Someone that you need to say, hey, here's where it looks like you've gone. And I want you to know who you are. You're precious. You're special. I love you. But I'm asking, what I'm asking is, would you come back? Would you think about how it began? It wasn't a, a, a lie. It wasn't an illusion. It was real. Here's why I'm reaching out. I care. Here's when things are going to change. When we can talk, we can figure this out. And in the meantime, boy, I'm going to pray. And in a moment, I want to pray together for, for all of the people that the Lord has laid on our hearts. But, but before we close, three things I want to say quickly. Paul says at the end, I have doubts about you. Notice, and notice, please, notice well, he doesn't say, I have doubts about me. And you shouldn't either. I'm not saying don't have doubts about Paul. Don't, don't have doubts about Paul. 
but don't have doubts about, about yourselves. Because, because when we start thinking about the people in our lives who have gone sideways, inevitably we, 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 we are tempted at least to think, here's what I should have done. Here's how I could have stopped it. Here's what I should have said. If only I would have. Don't go there. That, that's, a, that's a trap. That's a fool's errand. If you need help not going there, remember this. Jesus did His ministry perfectly. Witnessed to the disciples, to the apostles, wisely and well, flawlessly. Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him. People are people. And they go out, and, 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 and if they're determined to be people, we're not going to stop them. Don't have doubts about yourself. The, the second thing I would say is don't have doubts about your calling. Why are we here? The chief purpose of man is to give glory to God. Yes. But we'll do that in heaven. Why are we here? We're here to do the one thing that we can't do in heaven, and that's tell people who don't know Jesus or who aren't clear about Jesus about Jesus. Don't stop doing that. Don't have doubts that God wants you to do that. If you start saying, well, I, I, I didn't do it very well with this guy, and, and maybe I shouldn't just say anything. Maybe I'm safer if I don't talk. In fact, I'm just going to stay in my house and, and not interact with people because that way I won't hurt them. Oh, come on. God knew what he was doing when he entrusted ministry to us. He knew who we were. <laughs> we're us. Jesus did it perfectly. We won't. God has factored that into his plan. And he still has called us, hey, Go out and be witnesses. Go out and love people. And you know what? If you make a mess of it, I'm going to clean it up. Just keep loving people. Don't get under condemnation. Because you get under condemnation, then, then, then we're on our way to being the Galatians. I didn't please God very much in my friendship, in my relationship with that person. I didn't witness to them. I didn't love them as well as I could have. I think God's probably mad at me right now. And then we're off to the races then we're putting ourselves back under the law and we're no good to anyone because we can't give what we don't got. And if I'm back under the law, how am I going to talk to somebody about the grace of Jesus Christ? Don't doubt your past. Don't doubt your call, your future, your ministry. And here's the final thing. Don't doubt that God loves the people that you're thinking of more than you do. And even right now, if you don't know where they are, if you don't know how to reach them, if you don't know what you would possibly say to them, even if you did reach them, if you're in that place where you've said all you have to say to them, and now all you can do is pray, don't doubt that God hears those prayers. And don't doubt that God is right now moving, working in their lives in ways that you couldn't possibly design or engineer to give them every opportunity to hear and respond to the truth. It's what he did with us, and he doesn't love us more than he loves our friends. And he invites us to partner with him in that ministry. How? Through prayer. The people that we can't reach, the people that we can't touch, the people we can't move, what we can do is have faith in God, faith that moves mountains. And so, Lord, we come before you with a prayer of faith knowing that we're weak, but you're strong. 
knowing that our love is sometimes feeble and yours is infinite. And calling upon the Creator of the universe and Redeemer of our souls, Lord, would You intrude on people that we know and love, people who have walked away from You. Lord, would You, would you visit violent grace upon them, grace that they can't ignore, truth that they can't turn away from, love that they can't deny. And Lord, if there's, a, if there's a, a, a thing for us to do, a word for us to say, make that clear to us. Lord, use us if it's Your good and perfect will. But Lord, it's not about us. And we'll gladly ask You and allow You, set us aside for the sake of, of their soul, for the sake of their walk, for the sake of Your fellowship with them, Lord, would You have Your way. And Lord, maybe there's someone out there who's trying to speak to us. Maybe, Lord, You're trying to speak to us. Maybe we've gone astray and we don't know it. Maybe people have tried to point it out and we don't want to see it. Lord, don't let us find our identity in correcting other people's errors. Lord, draw us to You and speak truth to our hearts and use people, use Your Word. Use every resource at Your disposal, Lord, that we would be Sons, daughters, rejoicing in the adoption and the relationship and the eternity that you purchased at the cross.